met Katie Tunstall during uh, COVID when we teamed up with the brilliant Ellie Lennox for a, a charity event that Lenny was doing. And it just really struck me how easy it was to have a conversation with her. So I, knowing that she's got new music coming out, a new album coming out, I jumped at the chance to have a one-to-one convo with her. The list of accolades that she's got, just long, long, long awards, nominations. She's done some deeply interesting stuff as well outside of music. But for now, this is Katie Tunstall. These interviews I do, they're really, I mean, as an artist, you know, I don't, I don't get, it's like, I don't get personal asking all these deep questions that, you know what I mean? It's kind of, I just yeah. think it's rude. We all, we all know what it feels yeah. like. So it's just none of that. It's mainly just about something background and then a lot actually about the new album and about this whole idea of doing three albums. So yeah, for sure. It's well, kind listen, of music. I'm- I'm happy to answer anything. I I seem to have like uh, a, a a the filter is broken. If you ask me something, I just <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm a bit well, like fine. that. I'm a bit like yeah. that. But I do I do think as an artist, it's really weird because most of the time we're like talking to people who we don't know. We've never seen them before. Yeah. We've never met them before. And then they're suddenly. I remember the first time we went to um, New York. And we sat down and it was this big magazine uh, that we we're going to do thing. And the first question, the guy said, so what kind of sex do you like? And I remember what? thinking like, I, what? I mean, I don't That's have terrible. that. I've I barely never have that, that question with my friends. And you yeah. want me to answer that and put that in a magazine. And I've we all never... looked at each other like, oh, no. Gross. So, gross. But the funny so... thing I find with interviews when I first started was it was like being in therapy. Yeah, They're just like asking, like usually kind of negative questions, like what's the hardest thing you've done? Yeah, what's a bit the shade. embarrassing thing? What's you know why do you think you do what you do? And then, um, and it a lot of them I've never asked myself. Oh, mm. you know they weren't. You don't sit there just going, "What's the most terrible thing that's ever happened to me?" Because you know it's kind of like a lot of writing is just so self-analytical, and then you yeah. kind of write it and you leave it there, and you yeah. don't really think about it again until a lot of it. A lot of it's has quite been... automatic as well. Like yeah, it should be really. Years, you ask what black horse and the cherry tree means. I'm like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> I really don't know. Well, I say it's like general devil at the crossroads vibe old yeah. Robert Johnson blues, oh, Robert but jo- that's kind of it. <laughs> exactly. I love what I was, you know, I've done my research and I love what you said in your Oxford speech when you were talking about, you know, like as artists, we just start making things up, right? Yeah. And I really related to that because I was like, yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. I remember once being in Italy and somebody asking me about a lyric and I came up with the most brilliant answer <laughs> on the spot. And I looked at his face and he was so impressed. I remember thinking, I've got to remember that. And I completely forgot it and never, yeah. to this day, I don't know what I said. But if I could, if, if I could like, remember it, I just say it every time. <laughs> it feels like those really pretentious little descriptions next to paintings that someone else has written. And the artist probably reads and goes, not about that at all. Yeah. But I, I know I kind of leave, it's like, no, I, I, I'm a bit, little bit PJ Harvey about it. I'm like, whatever you think it's about, it's about. Yeah. But if you yeah, read the I lyrics. Yeah, she, re- she was, I got very inspired by her saying, you know, once it's out yeah. there, it's not mine anymore. And exactly. belongs to whoever's absorbing it. Yeah, it's, it doesn't, lyrics and songs do, they, they, they have their own life once they're in someone else's room and yeah, someone else's exactly. head. 
and they just have a different life and because everybody has their own perspective right but that was funny with suddenly i see because it got used in this movie you know and that song is about the it's about robert maplethorpe's photograph of patty smith on the cover of her album horses the whole song is about this one photo and how I related to it and how I sort of felt like I'd just been trying and trying and trying. And I was looking at this amazing kind of androgynous woman and she was just being, there was no like effort. And I was like, God, I just don't want to be, be trying all the time. I just want to be doing, you know? And, um, and I remember when that, when that song got used on Devil Wears Prada, I totally realized like how different a song can be interpreted you know by 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 and suddenly it was sort of like a fashion anthem and i was like it was so funny (laughs) you know i'd just been wearing like charity shop clothes and never really given a shit about fashion forever we never lose um, that either i still love a charity shop clothes (laughs) still the best the best vintage you know that no one else is gonna have that exactly cut it up you know it's all good exactly but um i was gonna ask you something i was gonna go back a little bit and then kind of jump jump into the future because i'm just always curious i remember for me there were two things that made me want to be a singer one was watching blondie in a stripy dress on top of the pops because top of pops was like my little secret friend that you know this little black girl in brixton watching top pops watching all these rock people when everybody else was out you know listening to dance hall and you know listening to reggae reggae and more reggae um and then um the second thing was when the whole scar thing came along and suddenly this was music that I grew up with. I grew up in a really reggae Jamaican family. My granddad had a nightclub. And um, oh, wow. yeah, so my first memories are watching people dancing at this nightclub, right? That's amazing. Then, I didn't know that. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah it sounds cool. <laughs> I mean, it's so opposite to me as well, where my, my dad was a physicist and I was hanging out in his lab. Oh my God, that sounds fun. That's I. That's that's me. That's yeah. I'm one of those we would people. have like we probably would have enjoyed a little swap for a week when a we little were swapsy, kids. exactly. Yeah. And then I was thinking about you know the scar thing got me into like reggae, which is what I knew. But suddenly these white boys and doing these funny dances and bands like Selector and the Beat and uh, Specials and Madness. You know that's what got me into rock mm. music. And I was wondering if you had a kind of like light bulb moment when you were a kid that you were like, yeah, this. This is the thing. This is the spark of my, this is what I want yeah. to do. You had that? So I was like you. I loved Top of the Pops. It was such a big deal. And I just, I remember, um, I remember my, my moment was actually seeing Kim Wilde. And I yeah. had, you know, it was the 80s. So it was all like very excessive and very image based and absolutely amazing pop songs. Yeah. But often like that electronic really, period, right? Yeah. Drums came but often in like quite polished and, and produced yeah. and processed sounding, you know? And um, I just remember hearing Kids of America kids in America and just going, this is amazing. And it still had like, you know, really janky little synths in it and stuff, but it was essentially like a, a, a rock and roll song. Um, and I just loved when I saw Kim Wilde, I really liked Toya as well. I really enjoyed watching Toya Wilcox. And um, it was just a bit of an antithesis to like the really high end, glamorous sort of Whitney Houston, Madonna, mm. 
you know, there were so many amazing female artists at that time. Um, but but I it was really seeing Kim Wilde where she was just there was a bit of tomboyishness about her. Yeah. And even though she was still sort of cool and sexy, but it was just there was just great attitude. And I loved Adam Ant as well. Oh my like, god, so, yeah. Oh, and I still love. Yeah, and I saw him play actually in LA that not that long ago, and he was amazing. It was still so edgy sounding, and just so um, you know, there's just something very irreverent about the music, and yeah. very rebellious sounding about the music, and so I was just immediately drawn to the kind of more feral feeling stuff. And then I found, and then I, I remember we got, we got a satellite dish when I was 14 and, uh, or 15 and MTV, like me, me and my brothers and my dad just got into this fight over like who was watching sport and who was watching MTV. And, um, and I just remember seeing the video for loser by Beck uh, wow. and just being suddenly going, Oh, I, I want to do that. I want to yeah. do, I don't want to dress up and wear dresses and lots of makeup i want to be like him and then around that time i just met a bunch of like total you know anti-establishment <laughs> folk rock weird punk artists in my hometown which i just didn't even know they that those people existed and then you suddenly smell I'm, each other and just gravitate towards each yeah other. and i was just like okay these are my people this is great it's interesting because I think that Kids in America, to me, if I look back on it, it's kind of like the 80s version of my generation by The Who. You know, it, that, Right, exactly. That's that's such a great way of describing it because it just, it was a kind of, it was a date stamp, flag in the sand of, of, of a sound um, and still just a really great, memorable song. But it was also, you know, the real advent of American culture just absolutely barreling into the UK mm. where you, obviously the kind of the, it had been swapped over where the Beatles were massively influenced. 1964 yeah when they went over. America. Yeah that was and kind then, of like the, the end of the genres wasn't it it was kind of yeah the and, end then, of... and obviously like the Rolling Stones were probably mm. the first major British band that that was very injected with America and um I mean, I'm 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 playing cod historian here because there's probably other examples, but you know, Mick Jagger was singing in such an American accent, um, and then come the '80s, it was just this, you know, John Hughes, um, just celebration of American high school culture yeah. in the UK, and, um, and we just and... fell in love with it, you know. Yeah. It's interesting because I think um, like I occasionally work with these kids and the one thing I will say to them is like you know all of this stuff is really important you've got to be technically proficient you've got to work out how to get soul in your songs you've got to be individual um, and you've got to do all these different things um, but the other thing is you have to do is you have to be ready because luck it's just yeah. sometimes things fall into your lap, right? You can be such prepared. That's why everybody, you know, there's so many great artists and some of them are just never get there. And you have this amazing story of Jules Holland, which we've also appeared on a few times. So I, I know what it feels like to be on that show. And you have this moment where you're just like, you know, you have you have one day's notice to jump in because Nas can't perform and you're, yeah. you know, Jules Holland. And what and a weird substitute. Yeah. That Nas, <laughs> the rapper, can't do it. So they call an 
a completely unknown butler <laughs> from Scotland. I mean, the thing is about it is that, you know, the wonderful thing about that show is that they have people with their tentacles out knowing good stuff. So someone yeah. was obviously very aware of you and was thinking at some point. Yeah, the scout, Alison, and um, someone else, the lovely, lovely pair of women who kind of were, were, were looking for artists for the show, because obviously they've always been extremely supportive of new acts and making sure that they include new artists on the lineup, which is just so special. Um, I, you know, in my case, completely changed my life with that yeah. show. And um, so they'd actually come to my rehearsal. They'd heard about me making the record and, the, you know, the labels are always trying to vie for yeah, um, yeah. opportunity. And they'd come to the studio to see me just practicing with my loop pedal. And I, I actually had just written Black Horse and the Cherry Tree, but after I'd finished the album. So Black Horse and the Cherry Tree wasn't on the first album. It, I wrote it after we'd finished recording and Other Side of the World was the first single, which I think was the first single, mm. the first sort of proper single of the record. Um, and then when I got the call to be on Jules Holland, my, my label boss Shabs just said to me, play that woohoo song. <laughs> I was like, why would I play? Why was like, why would I play that? It's not on the record. We didn't have a recording of it. It was just I'd just written it. Oh, crazy. Said, just play the one about the horse and just trust me. And so I, when I went on Jules Holland, I played that song, and it was so crazy because YouTube was so young in two thousand and four. It was very new, um, and really without the visual side of doing that performance i don't know if it would have taken off because it was so much it was about watching what i was doing as well as mm. the song yeah like and right place right time i yeah, i will say, exactly. say that like it's you like said, being ready and i and i've ten got years, a t-shirt <laughs> i've you got a t-shirt printed yeah exactly i've got a t-shirt printed that is a, a word beginning with f that rhymes with luck and it says f luck on the front <laughs> and on the back it says luck is being ready and that was always my motto after that experience because other bands had been given that opportunity but it hadn't happened you know for whatever reason but certainly you don't want to miss an opportunity by getting given the spot and then not being able to to be slay to, it, yeah to, to, to drop it because i mean that's all of those i mean as, as i was gonna say like you've been working since you were 18 to to get to yeah. that point to get a record deal and you yeah. got this record deal you get to 18 and then this moment, you know, and you've had a couple of those uh, in your career, yeah. but I was going to kind of, um, I was 29 when I did Jules for the first time, everyone thought I was like 50, a little baby, <laughs> because I had a chubby face. <laughs> <laughs> I know I was like 26 when we signed our record deal. And literally people thought I was like, you know, 17 or something like that. I mean, it's so great, tiny, isn't it? Cause you, you're out of the, you're out of the the kind of deep naivety yeah. of that age and a little bit of a little bit of um i guess clarity on what what you want and why you know yeah well it, uh, i yeah because for me it's like i was an adult we got signed when i was an adult i'd been through all of the craziness i was sure about my sexuality for example I'd been, you know, I'd left home. I was paying my own bills. I was doing all this stuff. I'd already been in a band where we made loads of mistakes and then Skunk and Nancy was the start of, you know, things going right. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually think that there's something good about just getting a success a little bit later. Not that that really kind of prepares you for it because it's, it's mad. 
you know it's yeah mad. i totally yeah. agree I, it, in many aspects it felt the same as it probably would have done if i was 18 mm. but i think i was less um blasé maybe about it i was sort maybe of maybe less easily swayed yeah and just i i worked really 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 hard because um i knew how important it was and i knew how hard i'd worked to get it mm. so i didn't take anything for granted mm. um i was gonna um ask you about um jumping from those very early days to kind of like now because mm. this album is um it's it's a wonderful album i love it thank you and it's interesting because it's you've made this it's, it's it's seven years in the making because you've made three albums body mind and spirit and this one is called nut and it's you know yeah. scottish way of saying your head you know yeah exactly and so i mean it's just it's quite a mammoth thing to have done what kind of sparked this idea of doing this trilogy what did you do one and then you were like no i'm gonna do two i've done this and now i'm gonna talk about these other parts of my character or was it something that you started with and then you actually stuck to which must actually be quite difficult yeah i mean i will say that if i get an idea in my head i'm a bit like a fox with a rat you know i'm just like oh i've just got to get it done and see it yeah. through get quite obsessive about a project i love kind of getting deep into a project what actually happened was that in 2012 when my dad passed i had i guess the closest thing to a breakdown in that i just realized i'd done all the things i wanted to do i'd had this amazing success as a musician and i was pretty miserable and I was like, how can that have happened? I was the boss here. I was making all the decisions. And, you know, with hindsight, you look back in that and you're like, well, you change as a person. You don't stay the same. You don't have the same dream at 35 as you do when you're 15. And, you know, you probably should have a different dream by that age. And um, so I kind of realized I was going to have to absolutely rip it up and start again and i didn't know if that meant making records or not it was definitely open season for for anything to happen at that point but the most important thing was that i found out what really what i wanted and what what felt in my soul like the right direction for my life and so i just sold everything i owned left my marriage and and moved to america Wow. Um, which was a great decision. I've, I, I've, I've, I've really, it's, it's, it's treated me so well. And I've just found it a very expansive experience moving to a different country. And I, I lived here when I was a kid, when I was four, my dad was at, at UCLA um, as a physicist. And so actually my first memories are California um, when I was four years old. And so there's a bit of familiarity here for me. Um, oh. But but what I found was after a couple of years of being here, I started writing a record and I didn't really mean to. And it was this really uplifting, anthemic kind of muscular pop record of an air punch of going, I'm still here. I'm still alive. I've survived these massive kind of tectonic shifts in my life and I'm going to celebrate myself here. And it felt like a record about the soul, like the phoenix yeah. rising, from the, rising from the ashes. And the world had gone quite a, a, quite a bit darker at that point in 2016. You know, it was starting mm. to 
feel divisive and and struggling and um and it was a very positive record so i just thought Do you know what this feels like a useful record to put into the world and i think that the purpose within the music was something i was really needing to to rediscover and it felt purposeful and so part of my healing process through my divorce and dad passing and kind of changing my life completely and facing a lot of the difficult stuff that got me there in the first place and fixing that stuff um which is a life project doesn't happen overnight <laughs> and, and, um, and, and but, never stops either no exactly but 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 part of that was meditation mm. and i got i got into a, a daily meditation practice and it was pretty extraordinary for me because my, I'm, my brain is is kind of loves worrying at full speed all the time and i found that it just gave me this buffer space to be able to receive ideas not just have ideas not just you know constantly be tinkering away in your tool shed but actually just shut up and allow what I like to think is the universe actually giving that some space to just come in and give you give you some spark and some some divine inspiration not just kind of you know your own machinations kind of like a rat and, on the on the on the wheel <laughs> yeah and so, so this 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 idea came to me when I was in Nashville touring that first record I was in this lovely park in Nashville called Centennial Park and I was just sitting in the sun just meditating and I just had this idea it was just like this record's about the soul and a lot of my personal work had involved realizing the soul the body and the mind are these three different aspects of yourself that that are all going to have very different reactions to things that happen in your life and I was like let's make a record for each of those aspects and it was also because I was getting really bored of the constant process of making a new record it just felt really repetitive where it was like make write the songs go in the studio make the record work with the hottest producer or mixer do the, the songs, you know go, go through the like rigmarole a... with the record label is this going to get on the radio do all the interviews do the promo do the tour boom start again and that process was becoming shorter and shorter because people's attention spans were getting shorter the the, the music landscape was getting more saturated and i found that on i think it was my third record i'd taken six months before finishing touring and starting the new record and it was Oof. and the press were calling it a comeback <laughs> i was like six what? months it's, it's, it's scary now but, how, so i kind of realized yeah. it doesn't matter how long you take now actually. no it really i i i i i agree i we i we just take as long as we like you know we haven't our new record we've been making it for three years now <laughs> oh wow well you definitely have an excuse for the last yeah. three years why well yeah well not really because a lot of people spent a lot of time writing during covid and for us that just didn't work we, no. we hated writing via zoom yeah i the material I, I, was horrible this record i did write in during lockdown and i did uh, i've never done this before i did all the music first yeah and then I but you you're so, the you, lyrics yeah but you're a solo artist so you literally can do it all by yourself you know yeah. with all the gear yeah. and you produce and you write and you play guitar you play piano as well right yeah yeah you know when you're a band 
we all ended up like I now have a studio and learn how to use all this gear. I'm, I'm, you know, I went to the professor school of YouTube and learned, got, the, and got it, the good old KRK behind you. Love seeing that. <laughs> and that's my DJ setup actually. So, so I have cool. my, I've got my eaves here, my, uh, 207s. So this is yeah. like, this side is the studio side. And the other side of the room is like the DJ side. Cause that's I love great. to learn DJ side. Yeah. So um, that's good for that. But they're, they're absolutely rubbish. Sorry, okay, okay, but they're rubbish for actual mixing. You know, you can't <laughs> mix or do any kind of production on them at all. I had to buy some new speakers for that. Um, and it's, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of like when you're a band, it's kind of, you need to, to see that's the wise really of those hard, other yeah. guys' eyes. And we tried it, it didn't work. So Very now, cool. you know, we're doing that in January. But um, the, the other thing I was going to say about it was, so which, I mean, you have to, do a lot of work and have quite a deep deep connection with yourself and to understand yourself oh, yeah. to do this, those three albums which which was the hardest one to self do self-help trilogy self-help yeah. trilogy, for <laughs> yeah. sure i mean that is not an easy road to go down uh, and and because i mean it's it's a lot of self-discovery um and which which one do you think was you know uh the the easiest and the hardest to make and That's such a good why? question i think the first one kin was probably the hardest one to make not that the that the making of the songs was particularly difficult but just from a personal perspective i was coming out the back of really not being sure that i wanted to make records anymore and so there was this really big decision to be made do i really want to jump back into this because i'm not someone who's going to do things by halves so if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And as you and I both know, this is not a nine to five job. This is like, it's going to take over your entire, entire life. Entire life. Yeah. And your waking day. You're waking for up the four in the morning year. to write a lyric and, you know. Yeah. And, and it's stuff. like everything around you, your relationships, your diary, your availability emotionally and physically is going to be somewhat a slave to making the decision that you're going to do this record. Um, and so that was definitely tough because I, to extract yourself from the identity of being a, a, an artist, which I had been completely enveloped with, which is partly why I think I ended up a bit miserable, which was just like, who am I without this job? And I'd finally got to the place where I'd managed to sort of separate that where I was like, yes, it is a job and this is who I am. And I need to get to know myself a bit better without this being part of it. You know, it was definitely a little treacherous making the decision to jump back into it. But I was, I, I, once I was in, I loved it. And I made that record with Tony Hoffer, who was in Beck's band during Odelay and back then and has produced a couple of brilliant um, records with Beck and numerous other people. And he was just a great, I love working with, with a producer. Yeah. I, I've always really cherished the producer relationship in a record sort of saving me from myself. <laughs> so, you know, an opportunity to really learn about craft, about album craft and studio craft. Um, and then the easiest one to make, I can't say it was the last one because we had a global pandemic. So it just 
by default made that pretty difficult logistically and also just as we said from a lyrical point of view i just didn't have anything to say you know for two years i was just like all i'm thinking about is it's 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 weird that that same thing happened to me it's like you you know all i ever wanted was more time and then i had loads of time and i I felt the idea of not being you get your lyrics from being part of the world yeah and being ostracized for that it just yeah. and not being able to look at people and hear people's I'm 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 somebody who like listens to people's conversations and that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, me too. I'm very, very I much an observer. You know, you realize how much you you know, you I think in some ways you know you have this metaverse mentality towards stuff where we're all just gonna be sitting in front of our computers being in a universe. It's like no, it actually doesn't work because you actually need to be part of the world to write about the world and to write about your yeah. and to be able to reflect about your part inside that world. And it's, a, it's, you know, it's, it's about the emotions of things. And it, it, it is just, you can't get away from the fact that no matter how good virtual reality or AI or interfacing gets, there's just a veil that, that stops complete emotional interaction mm. when you're just on a screen or you're not in person and not feeling someone's skin or seeing their eyes or, you know, yeah, it is not the it same. In, it's just not the same. And so wax, the second one, which was the body record. And I, I love this Kurt Vonnegut quote, which said, um, so it was soul, soul was the first one. And then the body was the second. It was just the absurdity of us having this existential cosmic existence and then driving a meat car. <laughs> you know, but we've all, we've got like less than a hundred years, unless we're very lucky, to just so sort of drive through this ridiculously like physical life with this amazing consciousness inside a little body. And um, he his his quote was, um, "The soul knows the meat is doing terrible things, but the meat goes on doing terrible things, and the soul is embarrassed." <laughs> It's something like that. But it's just that crazy juxtaposition between the fact that we're recycled stardust racing through space and time on a rock, you know, and at the same time, it's just like you've got, you've got legs and arms and and you're trying to part in a meeting, you know. (laughs) Exactly. Your legs and arms that don't do what they're supposed to be doing. And we're so fragile, but we're so resilient and so adaptable, you know, at the same time, it's just, it's pretty fascinating. And so I loved, I loved the ring fencing of themes on these records. It really, I enjoyed it so much having a sort of puzzle to work out and keeping within these bounds of ideas. And, um, but they're endlessly fascinating subjects, you know, the physicality of life, the soul aspect of life and our brains. Um, and then the thing I loved about it, about the new one was the brain one ended up being probably the most tender record, probably the most kind of sweet and, Mm. and soft record out of all three of them, which you might not expect, you know, and it's it's musically quite delicate as well in the sounds yeah. and your yeah. approach to to some of the songs. I love Private Eyes. I think Thank you. that's my favorite. Yeah, um, and it's, it, that was strange too because I was reading about how the eyes are part of your brain. They're mm, like a they're considered a part yeah, of your yeah. brain that are on the outside of your head. Um just completely connected in and 
and it's just so strange with our job there's that amazing neil neil young song um where he says uh i need a crowd of people but i can't face them day by day mm. it's just that really weird compulsion to be public and be known but then to actually not really enjoy that very much i mean it's, it's 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 we 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 get we get into this because we write songs. I was writing songs at thirteen years old, and that's the first thing I did. I had yeah, no intention to too. sing them. I was yeah. just writing songs, and I didn't even play guitar at that point. It was all in my head, and I write them yeah. out my little Falafax. And, and and then it's it's almost like the, the being a performer, and then being famous is like this weird byproduct of like Absolutely. I want to write songs, and now I have to do this shit, you know? Yeah, we're the um, same in that respect because I think that some people do covet fame and do really enjoy fame. Mm. And I'm often like quite envious of that because I just think I had it on a plate and I just didn't want it. Yeah. I didn't want to eat that meal. Like yeah, I'd, it's, I'd it's, try and go to these like parties and stuff. And it was just like, this is awful. I know, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get the desire to be famous because I think maybe because we've been through that, we realize how awful it is most of yeah. the time i mean yeah you might get a table in a restaurant or you might get some yeah somebody I mean, wants I you to wear some nice clothes yeah. i can get it but that being the main thing i have to tell myself remind myself to not complain about it because there are things about it that i really enjoy it's really nice having conversations with strangers who tell you that that, that your song has got them through something really difficult or you know, was was the soundtrack to some great times in their life. And I really love that about it. But um, but it's very disturbing to me when you hear young people going, I just want to be famous. I just want to be an influencer. I just want to be I want to be known. And it, it mm. it's a real be careful what you wish for, because there's not there's not I, the, the quite... people I know, the people I know who are really, really famous, who are friends of mine. It just mm. looks like a nightmare. Yeah, I would agree. I, it's, I find it spiritually exhausting mm. to, um, and, and I think that, you know, all of us um, artists, you know, that's like, there's a side of us that we play a role to protect our own spirituality and our own soul. You know, we like walk yeah. into a room and uh, walk into a room and be skin, you know, because, but the real skin has to protect herself because it's spiritually draining, exhausting. I mean, imagine, I don't know what Harry Styles is going through right now. I know. Well, you can see, like, you can see the cracks becoming to appear, you know, he's beginning yeah. to get like angsty and not so yeah. nice because, you know, it's just, it must be exhausting being that famous. Um, yeah, yeah I, I don't envy that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about because people just think you're whining and, and nobody has yeah, any sympathy absolutely. for you. So, yeah, I would, I would never complain about it because it's, you know, this life is, I love this life. It's offered me the most amazing experiences and I've seen so much of the world, which was, re that was another big thing for me was I wanted to see the world. I wanted to travel mm. and it gave me an excuse to see some unbelievable places and meet people all over the world. Um, like Stevie Nicks, who you wrote Demigod about. I know. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, you hung out with Stevie Nicks. I'm, well known. I'm so glad I'm well known. I'm so glad I'm well known. <laughs> I want to hear about you hanging out with Stevie Nicks. I mean, what a goddess. So what a goddess. So she um 
she is family level close with my friend Vanessa Carlton. And Vanessa and I met on this bizarre trip to the Arctic for like a for an environmental campaign. And we just a bunch of us on a boat up the west coast of Greenland, which was mad. It was me and Jarvis Cocker, Feist, oh. Martha Wainwright, Ryuchi wow. Sakamoto, Laurie Anderson. I mean, it was just bananas. Crazy. And, and Vanessa was on that trip and we made friends and she was in L.A. at some point. She said, do you want to come and have dinner for my birthday? Stevie's taking me out. And there she's sort of like you know, her second mother or big sister. I'm not sure which, but they're very close. And I was like, um, yeah, that would be great. I'd love to come. <laughs> and so it was only like five or six of us. Um, and we went out for dinner and it was just, it was just the most delightful, wondrous, humbling, beautiful evening of spending time with one of my absolute idols. And she was everything you'd ever hoped. She was just so down to earth and dry and like really funny. But then you could really see that half of her was just angelically supernatural. Mm -hmm. And we ended up kind of going back to her place after dinner and she was showing us some of our artwork that she'd done, which was so beautiful. And then she oh, was wow. like pulling out old, um, old hair extensions like from the seventies. <laughs> like, I mean, it was just so oh, wow. fun. Um, and anyway, a few months later, Fleetwood Mac had reunited and they were playing in London and I couldn't get tickets. And um, I, I called Vanessa and said, you know, is there any chance you think you'd be able to get me on the guest list? She's like, yes, absolutely. And you've got to go and say hi to Stevie. And I said, I'm, no way. I'm just going to be like in a queue <laughs> behind, behind Debbie Harry and Eric Clapton and all the other people who are going to see her. And uh, she was just shut up, just go and say hi to her. So I did. But but about four songs, we went and got our seats, amazing seats, and like four songs into the set, the band lead the stage. It's just her and Lindsay Buckingham. And she said on the mic, this one goes out for the coolest chick in the house. This is for Katie Tunstall. And they played Landslide. Wow. And Did you I shoot nearly <laughs> threw up my dinner. It was just... I, I actually went to unbelievable. see them. I, I saw them. It was when... Um, uh, what's the name was still in the, the guitarist was still in the band. Yeah. Uh, but it was a few nights. So I missed that night because I think I was there. Oh, so it was that tour. It, I think it was that tour because he's not with them. Like anymore. Halloween time. Yeah. Time. It's a few years ago. Um, but yeah, so I went back and said hi. And I was just like, you don't know what that means. Yeah. It's just because first of all, it's just like there's a finite number of people on this planet who are going to experience that, you know. Stephen, <laughs> dedicating landslide to you. Um, and then secondly, I've had idols, you know, Chrissy Hind, I was on tour with the Pretenders and Chrissy Hind just did, gave me the same gift of, of giving me a shout out on stage and just, uh, and you, you don't get it for free. You have to earn that from someone and so there's a lot you know it's not just someone you love and respect giving you a shout out it, it yeah. in that moment is the 15 years of work that you've put in to earn your to own get that respect yeah. stage and for them to, to 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 be kind of considering you appear which is yeah and really, and, and, really it's a huge it's a huge respectful gift you know and a lot of um, headlining artists don't do that. I mean, we've no, done so many That's support right. tours. And I, most of the time, I think 
um most of the time they don't want they want the audience to forget about a really good support band <laughs> i know? know i've always been incredibly picky and always personally picked my support acts to make sure it's someone i love and someone who really deserves to be heard and they will absolutely get a shout out every night because yeah it's, it's, i think it's, it's, it's a way of it's a it's way vital. of giving back isn't it i remember being on uh, we did some gigs and um uh David Bowie we were doing some gigs with David what? Bowie and he looked at me and said milk is my sugar and then played one of our like half of one of our songs and I was kind of like I can't oh, actually quite man. believe this is happening I can't believe oh, that it's happening man. and I can I can there's about four times in in our career that the headlining act has ever mentioned us so well listen it if is, you can choose which one then Bowie's then, the one yeah Bowie it was it was a great moment We all have like little tricks as artists. We all have little tricks that we do, like <laughs> because you know, as you, as you said earlier in the conversation, you know, it's quite what we do is quite monotonous. You know, yeah. you record the songs, you like, sing surprisingly songs. Surprisingly, so I think people yeah. don't realize that that it can get really repetitive. Exactly, and even though the difference is you're in different countries and different cultures, and that's what makes it interesting. And I have a couple of tricks that I do just to kind of keep that spark going because you know so i'll you know I'll, i'm i'm always gonna fuck with the band so i'll be like yeah let's just change that I'm gonna do, we're just gonna do this one next and you know the lighting the production the band just go like what and then they just do it because they're like they're, they're, for them it's the same they, it's exciting or then i'll do I'll, every gig i'll try to do something weird or un, unexpected because those are the moments i think make that gig special yeah do you have any little tricks you know especially for up-and-coming artists and whatever like that you do to kind of keep that spark there alive because i mean your music is you know like 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 our music is not tied down to a click track you know you can no, do not at you all want, right and i'm often playing solo these days as well with the pedal setup so i have to keep it interesting for myself mm. so one of the really fun things i did on tour which i kind of can't believe i did now um was I did, it was called the Twitter cover, the Katie Twitter cover challenge. <laughs> and I would go on Twitter oh my God. and every night, the night before, the day before, I would say, if you're coming to the gig in wherever, you know, Pittsburgh tomorrow night, um, reply to this tweet with a hashtag of the, where, of the city I'm playing and the song that you want me to play, the song that you want me to cover. Wow. And the rules of it were, I was allowed to look at the lyrics, but I was not allowed to practice the song. <laughs> and so I had to go on stage and, and, and play, so I could work the chords out and stuff, but I had to use all my looping and beats and everything and basically play this cover for the first time ever. <laughs> and did you know the songs? Did you yeah, so I had to one? choose. I had to choose a song that I know. But you kind of knew, but didn't yeah, know. But like... often, yeah, often you'll listen to a song and realize that you actually don't know it that well. Yeah, you know, the verse is weird, or there's a weird midlay, or there's weird timing, or you know, chord changes. Yeah. And um, it was absolutely brilliant fun. <laughs> I was doing like destiny's child and prince <laughs> and like you know there was just all these songs that i and it's such a masterclass learning 
good songs. And mm. I was, I've always been an absolutely rubbish party guitarist. I don't, I've got terrible memory. Mm. So I don't, I don't have like a catalog of stuff that I can play. So I could have the lyrics, but it was just hilarious. And it was such, it was such fun. And then the person who chose the song was in the audience. So they would get a shout out as well. <laughs> Brilliant. And then the other thing I do, which I love doing is when I go to a country that's got a different language, I always grab someone from the house crew or from the promoter team or something. And I phonetically write like mm. a page of, of of saying something to the audience in their language and i have no idea what i'm saying and they and they love it yeah and they love it and like, i remember yeah. doing it in den in copenhagen and they were like you sound exactly like the queen of <laughs> <laughs> and so it completely depends who you learn it from as well who's telling yeah. you and it's got to be phonetic because you you can't read. You can't, yeah. If it's written properly. I, I, I could say like, thank you, uh, uh, thank, welcome to the show, and thank you, like in about fifteen different languages. I always yeah, exactly. learn how to say thank you and hello, like an opening sentence, and yeah, because it's like saying one thing in someone's yeah. language. So what, I would usually know. just say, you know, hi everyone, just so you know, I have no idea what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I've done. I've done Japanese, I've done Portuguese in Brazil, we've done all the Scandi countries. And it's people, people, so people don't care, it's, make, it's about making the effort, it doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter if you're doing it right or wrong, it's just making the effort, right? Yeah. And well, so there that, you go, folks. There you go, folks. I mean, the, I mean, basically, from two from two uh, artists, it's all about just doing something expected, unexpected. You yeah. know, making an idea that suits up you and your band, right? And I think like connecting with the people who are there. You're not playing to an audience. Mm. You're playing to a bunch of people from Bournemouth. Mm. Like Google Bournemouth. <laughs> exactly. I always do a little Google. The, the other thing that's really funny is if you look up what the Twin City is with where you're playing, and it comes up with some really funny places. Like I, I can't remember what I was playing recently, but it was somewhere pretty nondescript in in America, I think. And it was twinned like with somewhere in the Congo, <laughs> on like a bonobo monkey reserve. Wow. And I was like, Dude, and no one knew. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing it just keeps it fresh right keeps it fresh and i was like i wonder if someone on the congo in the congo bonobo reserve is is playing a katie tunstall song tonight <laughs> oh in recognition of announcing yeah. to the world that we are twin cities exactly. um, i've got one more question for you i mean you've you've you're you're on tour are i'm you getting going to over to do the uk tour in february is that the first since covid or it's the first big headline tour I'm doing mm. since COVID. The first thing I did with COVID was open for Rick Astley and that was amazing. Oh my God, he's a sweetheart. We're in arenas again and he's just the best human being on the planet. So that was great. But February, March in the UK will be a really exciting big band. I don't often do a band tour, so it's just going to be great. Um, mm. And uh, I'll give you the scoop on that. <gasps> What's well, the scoop? It's Andy <laughs> Burrows um, on drums from Razorlight. From Razorlight. Yeah. Wow. And Fantastic. Burrows and he's, uh, he's opening the shows as well. So he's doing double bubble on that one. But we've also got the amazing Shea Adelican on bass ah, from Gorillaz. Fantastic. Um, Paloma. So uh, we're going to have a really, really exciting band on that. And so, and then I'm doing some gigs in the, in the US after that, in the okay. spring. So I'll definitely be doing 
doing some well, more shows. I'll, I'll, I'll find out and I'll catch up with them um, about, uh, I'll, fi- I'll find out and catch up. And yeah. I'll see you and I'll be in the front row going like, hi, yeah. hi, You'll be on stage, up. girl. We'll be doing, we'll be doing, we'll, we'll be do doing a duet. Yeah. Twitter cover challenge duet. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. Me and um, you, Islands in the Stream. Uh, oh my God. You know, that was like Jamaican number one for like 16 weeks. I grew up with was that it? song. You know, Jamaicans love, love country music. It's so you know? funny. Last question, last question. So, you know, you've done so much and now you've completed, this is the last in the trilogy of this of this kind of bunch of records taking you seven yeah. years seven years yeah i can't believe seven it's years. done actually it's really and it's so crazy yeah, like how's it feel like and what's next well the first one was like out of this sort of personal turmoil in my life the second one i lost my hearing during wow. the during the tour of a record about the body i lost all hearing in my left ear permanently did you get it back no oh. so i'm now 100 oh deaf i'm now monotonstal wow and then you know i was thinking what the hell's going to happen during the record about the mind and the whole world went bananas mm. uh, so expand this really crazy personal stuff and a global pandemic mm. um so it's been the soundtrack to a really extraordinary time um and it's really weird now thinking about what i'm going to do next because i'm i'm so used to writing within subject matter like that like concept records so i don't know i don't know i've got i've got a record coming out early next year which is a it's an album of duets that i've written with susie quattro wow and we just ended up hanging out a lot and doing lots of writing and before we knew it we had a record it's really good i'm really proud of it and susie just deserves all the love she's she was the first female rock musician ever that's right yeah um and so she i'm very um i met her at like an elvis tribute concert in hyde park and she came up to me and she was like i'm giving you the baton it's up to you now katie (laughs) (laughs) i got given the lady rock baton fantastic but listen i'm gonna go um thank you so much it's so uh, nice to see you and talk to you (laughs) Yeah, it's it's lovely to to catch up with you and chat to you. I just yeah. um, I remember last on the on the Annie Little thing, I was like, oh, one day I've got to interview her. She just seems so um, lovely and gorgeous and warm. And you've been everything that I've uh, expected and 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 wanted. So oh, thank you for thank giving you. me your. I hope to return the favor. I would love to ask you these questions. Yeah, you you know we'll have dinner. You come to yeah, me, we'll have dinner. Do. Or if you go do a podcast, you can interview me. Exactly. <laughs>